I'm Evan Smith. Welcome to the Texas Tribune's Trib Live podcast. This podcast series features discussions with some of the state's most influential elected officials and policymakers, all recorded in front of a live audience. The Tribune hosts more than 50 free Trib Live events each year around the state, plus our big annual Texas Tribune Festival in Austin. To learn more about our Trib Live events or the Texas Tribune, visit us at texastribune.org. The Texas Tribune's Trib Live event series is made possible through the generous support of AT&T, BP, Christus Health, Raise Your Hand Texas, Texas Coalition of Dental Support Organizations, Texas A&M University, and 83rd Legislative Session sponsor, MyPlates.com. Please join me in welcoming the Honorable Tony Garza. Yeah. Good to see you. Come on, sit down. Appreciate your being here. Uh, and welcome back to Austin. Yeah. Well, thank you. We could get used to having you back here. Actually, the furthest was the Driscoll. I came over from Is that the right? Driscoll well, I'm just gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna assert that you by, came by up this morning. By way of Mexico morning. City and San Antonio. Uh, and well, thanks. Well, welcome, good to see you. Now, I mentioned that it was a big news week, a lot of yeah. tragedy we saw this week around the country, and I think that but for Boston, and but for now West Texas, and frankly, but for the, the vote on the gun, legislation yesterday, these are all massive news events happening within the space of 48 hours, we'd be more focused on the fact that progress is actually being made to yeah. some degree on immigration reform, finally, in Congress. Yeah. I'm going to ask you to role play a lot during the next 35 minutes. So I want you to now be U.S. Senator Garza. You are in the United States a Congress. Nice, nice ring to it. U.S. Senator Garza. <laughs> You'd have to run for that office. It might seem less pleasant <laughs> it's, it's along the way. Right? Um, way. So you're U.S. Senator Garza. You now are, uh, are you encounter this legislation attempting to finally overhaul the immigration system mm -hmm. in this country. What is your reaction to what you've read and seen so far? Well, first, I think you take... Uh, Look, first, I, I think we have to appreciate what, what, what happened in Boston reminds us all of how vulnerable we are and, and how uh, indebted we are uh, to, to a country that allows us these freedoms yeah. uh, and indebted we are to the extraordinary uh, capabilities of first responders and, right. and, the, and the people that just jumped into it. You saw the picture of the cowboy jumping in yeah. and this sort of thing. Uh, but I think in terms of, of what's going on in Washington, uh, you know, after Newton, it was guns. After the elections, it was immigration. Uh, we still have this sort of looming debt deficit yep. uh, discussion that we have to have as a country. So I think if I, if, if I were uh, counseling or advising uh, somebody in the Senate, uh, I, I, would, I, would, I would suggest they take a step back and realize what the impact of these sorts of issues and the failure to address them would be. Yeah. Uh, and and it's, it, it's interesting because we recognize that Washington has, has become a very partisan place, uh, and the issues that are out there right now are built around coalitions that are very fragile. Yeah. Uh, as one person, <laughs> I'm not, not going to uh, tell you who it was, he says it's just them that them that like illegals don't like guns. Them that like guns don't like illegals, and and those are the two issues that are out there. Right. Uh, but the so, immigration issue, Mr. But, Bester, but, seems to be more bipartisan than it, a lot of other issues. It seems to be more, more bipartisan, but my point is yeah. how fragile the coalitions are. Right. Uh, and I think what you have in terms of the proposals of the Gang of Eight, you ha I, I think you have a very solid proposal, and I would be concerned that deviating from it too much right. would uh, uh, would lead it down the path of failure. Uh, I think a lot of folks are going to have to take those kind of votes that are difficult. Uh, where they recognize that nobody got everything they wanted right, uh, and go down the road. So I, I think take a step back, start making the arguments about the economies and how important immigration reform is to the economic viability and vibrancy of our country. In fact, you wrote an op-ed that ran right. in the Express News, yeah. uh, I think on April 5th, arguing that from an economic health of the country standpoint, yeah. we've got to do immigration. You know, one of the things I always say while I was uh, at Post in, in uh, Mexico, and I see a couple of people that I served with here, uh, is I think at times we, made, we, we, we made a mistake in talking about the immigration in terms of the benefit to other countries, that really what we have to talk about is immigration in terms of the benefits to the United States. I don't expect our, our leadership in Washington to do anything out of a sense of generosity, but I do expect them to do things out of a sense of self-interest in the best interest of our country. Yeah. And if you look at the arguments about uh, the economic arguments for immigration reform, you recognize that, that our economy exists and thrives and grows be, be, uh, because of the immigrant, whether it's the, the, uh, in the high-tech sector, yep. 
uh, in terms of, uh, of the jobs created and the small businesses and the, the entrepreneurism and the patents filed. I mean, you go down the litany of things, uh, whether it's in the uh, lower skilled labor, uh, the fact that if, if somebody's working in the lower, lower skilled job that otherwise would not have been done, the spinoff from that creates three and a half other jobs. Yep. Uh, and so I think step back, make the economic case for how it's in the best interest of the U.S. Right. And then, and then sort of, you know, cinch up and take a, uh, and take a difficult vote. What about the security issue? You know, we have in, uh, yeah, you at, know, at, at this moment from the right, the yeah. number of Republican senators, including our two senators from Texas, are arguing that border security should really be our first priority and that the bill that's being presented by the Gang of Eight may not sufficiently address that issue. Yeah. Well, well let me say, I think, I think border security is important to, 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 to Americans generally. Yeah. And what we have to focus on is border security that is actually effective. Uh, I, I, for example, have no ideological or theological reservations about a wall. I just don't think it works. It's a practical uh, problem. It's, it's a practical problem. And I say that from the perspective of somebody that has walked that river, that grew up in South Texas, that, that uh, quite frankly, where, where I was born was probably 800 meters to the river. Right. And so I've seen that. Uh, if you look at the, 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 the vast majority of people that are in this, in this country without documents arrived legally and simply overstayed their visas, and secondly, I, and I'm pretty sure I'm right about that, Kramer. Kramer sort of rolled his eyes, but that was uh, our, our consul general in Mexico City while I yeah. was there. Uh, and, and in terms of the hard drugs, the cocaine and the methamphetamines, these sorts of things, again, the vast majority arrive through the otherwise legal crossings. Yeah. So I think what we have to focus on is uh, more efficient uh, enforcement and security at the legal crossings, more uh, implementation of, of technology and the ability to scan and review what's happening at our legal, legal crossings and the ability to get a sense of who's coming into our country, where they're going, and whether or not they're overstaying the documents that allowed them to come into the country. So I think we have to be very careful about saying security and immediately thinking, quote, boots on the ground and walls, and, and walls along the uh, uh, river. If our, if our focus is security, let's figure out how we can do it most effectively, not how we can do it in a way that simply right. sort of assuages some sort of visceral idea of what security means. You, you buy the argument that Governor Perry and others in Texas have made that somehow President Obama and this administration have failed to adequately secure the border? Well, you know what, listen, I think that would be a, uh, uh, a hard argument in this sense. A hard argument to, to prove that they had failed to secure the border. Well, look, I, I don't know if the border is more secure by virtue of the fact that, uh, that we're doing anything in particular in Washington, but if you look at the movements of people across that border, that was something much larger than one administration. That was an economic situation right. that, uh, that, that uh, impacted the push-pull factors. Look. Uh, it's well, not, the numbers would suggest the illegal, numbers, cross, illegal crossings are down they're, and, they're and down deportations to, uh, are up. Essentially, right? uh, a, uh, the illegal uh, crossings are nearly net zero and yeah. the deportations are up. But, but if you look at that, uh, there is an expanding middle class, growth in Mexico. People don't go strictly for ever so slightly a wage differential. It has to be significant to leave your country to come to the United States. So more people are actually staying home in Mexico. Yeah. And then if you look at the pull factors, uh, over the course of the last handful of years, our economy has not been as strong or as robust or drawing people into any number of sectors. Not as many jobs. Not as many jobs. So whether, was that the, was that the byproduct of one administration? No, that was a byproduct of, I think, of the economic realities. Ultimately, these are economic issues. People, uh, people move for economic reasons. Yeah. What about the, the, those who would say that whatever you dress this up, address this bill up to be, in the end, it's going to be amnesty of some fashion. That, that's, that's been the complaint about a lot of immigration reform legislation that has been attempted, not just present, but go back to 06 when your old boss, President Bush, made a, a valiant attempt to get some kind of comprehensive immigration reform passed, was attacked from the right. Ultimately, that effort failed. You heard cries of amnesty then. You hear cries of amnesty yeah. now. I, I, think, I think it reminds us of, how, uh, of the power of words in the public arena uh, and, and the need to uh, frame issues correctly. Uh, I think one of the things that, that, that we realized six years ago is if you were explaining, you were losing. And if you had to explain why it was an amnesty, you were probably losing the argument. Uh, Isn't that what Senator Rubio is doing right now, having to explain why this is not amnesty? Well, listen, 
I, I think if you look at what I understand the initial outlines of the bill to be, a two or $3,000 payment, a, uh, uh, a 10 year track to uh, the ability to apply, and then a three year wage, you're looking at a 13 year uh, window. Uh, it's hard to call Worst that amnesty. amnesty ever, right? This is like uh, it, significantly it, bad. I mean, if you want to get here yeah. illegally and be here illegally, it takes a long time yeah. to convert. Let, let's say you're 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 saying, well, it's uh, it's that somebody has come here illegally, and we are going to uh, quote uh, punish them for that act. Yeah. In a criminal setting, let's say, and now walk yourself into a criminal court in the state of Texas. Yeah. What level of offense would it take to get essentially a 10-year deferred adjudication after which you had three more years that you remained on probation? It's got to be a pretty serious offense. Right. And so if you look at that, you'd say, and that's amnesty for a pretty yeah, serious offense? that's not terribly forgiving. That's not terribly forgiving. It says you're, you have a significant hurdle to overcome in terms of the way you have lived your life in this country. You're going to pay a fine. You're going to have a 10-year track and a three-year window and then the opportunity to apply for citizenship. I, you know, I, I've got to agree with the senator. It's, it's hard to call that amnesty. Are you going to find, uh, uh, Senator Garza, enough of your colleagues, since we're still role-playing here, enough of your colleagues to support this bill, you think, in the end, understanding that the bar now has been moved, or the goalposts have been moved from 50 to 60 on almost every issue. Are you going to find 60 U.S. senators who, will, in the end, will support this legislation? Uh, I think so. I, I, I think they're are some of some sort of the macro factors that influence uh, the environment within which those votes are being cast. One is, I think better economic arguments have been made this time around. I think better coalitions have been built in yeah. terms of business and labor. I think there's a more of a recognition that the movements of people north from, uh, from other countries are such that uh, uh, they're, they're more manageable now. I think there's a general sense on the uh, security that we're doing a little bit better job. Uh, and just the demographics of our country suggest that if yeah. you don't get with it, you're going to get left behind. And so I, th I think those sort of factors all suggest in the Senate side on the Senate side you're going to be all right. What's interesting, six years ago I actually talked to then President Bush a week out from the vote in the Senate, yeah. uh, and then a few days uh, after that. And he says, Tony, the problem was we were picking them up in, as he put it, onesies and twosies, and then when they started to run, they were running in threesies and foursies. Yeah. And, and so I think, you know, 60, 60 is a significant bar. What happens in the House is anybody's guess. Right. Uh, but I think, I, I think it should be good. Not going to get there, though, unless it gets out of the Senate. Yeah, exactly. What I didn't hear you say about why it might pass, uh, Mr. Ambassador, is the political realities of our times. There are well, a lot no, of no, people. No, 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 listen. Yeah. I think you put that under the heading of demographics and, and, and what's going on well, in, well, in our let, country. Well, let me, let, me, let me go there for a second. So the, okay. the conversation is taking place is that but for the 2012 presidential campaign, in which Governor Romney did not get a historically low share of the Hispanic vote, but close to it, 27%. But for the realities of that presidential campaign, we would not be having the serious progress toward immigration reform that we are because there would not be the motivation of Republicans to figure out some way to crack that code. Would, would you accept that as a premise, or do you think that's not fair? Uh, I think it's, it, it's too, too pat, in a sense. Okay. Uh, yeah, I think immigration is part of the the uh, part of the issue mix that Latinos take into consideration when casting a vote. I don't think it's the only one. Uh, I think if you look at the uh, Latino community within the United States, we're interested in a broad range of issues. Right. But but this one, I think, in a sense, because of the tone with which it has been discussed within the Republican Party at times, has driven a wedge between the Republican Party and the Latino community. Uh, in some respects, it may be a variation on theme of what we saw in the 60s as the Republican parties kind of drew wedges between the, the uh, traditional conservative Democrat on certain social and cultural issues and moved them over to the party. Right. And so I think the kind of the reverse and the it's bad side here. of that. Yeah. But, but I, 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 I think it's too facile, but it does contribute to the mindset of a Latino voter when they're going to cast a vote. It, if you feel as though you have had a finger pointed at you, uh, I, I don't know if it was Ron or Ruben Navarrete's columns that says, you know, at some point they, I felt that finger was pointed at me, that there was no distinction made between the rights of citizens and the rights of people without documents that were simply brown folk. Everybody was lumped in the same group. And, yeah, and, and, and that's when I think the Latino community started to look a bit right. differently at the party. Uh, you accept, you accept that, your, that your party 
And you've been a Republican for, yeah, you for, for, you know, for long enough and, and in places where it was not cool to be Republican also. I mean, we talked about how you were the first and the first. You actually you put enough adjectives in front of anything, you're going to get first. Well, <laughs> but, but, but First but, Latino Republican in South Texas over six feet. You were, okay. you, were elected, <laughs> you were elected Cameron County judge as a Republican, though, back in 1988. You know, right. that's, a, that's a long time ago, and you were, in fact, the first Hispanic Republican elected countywide. So you've been at this for a long time. You've watched the evolution of the relationship between the party and the Latino community. So I want to ask you, do you accept the generally accepted idea mm -hmm. that your party has had a problem communicating adequately with the Latino community in the main over the last couple of years? Oh yeah, you bet. And, and, but we, we started with some uh, disadvantages. One is Texas, and I'm going to limit, start with Texas and sure, then build sure, out. Sure. I mean, Texas since uh, uh, Reconstruction have been a traditionally democratic state. And so people, Latino populations generally will gravitate towards, I think, the power, the, the party that is in power or making decisions. I don't think that's that's I don't think that's unique to the Latino community. And once having gravitated towards a party, there is a tendency to stay loyal to that party. There is a tendency to stay within that. I mean, the, the habits, both good and bad, are bad to break. Are hard, are difficult to break. Uh, and so I think we started with that kind of structural disadvantage as, as, a, as a party, building within a community that had already established some you know, long-standing uh, patterns of voting within the Democrat primary and the Democrat, and for Democrat, uh, and for the Democrat, Molly Beth, am I getting this right? Democratic, I always drop that IC, okay, the Democratic Party. Uh, and so we start with that. Second, I think that there was, uh, and, the, and the Democratic Party did a very good job of framing issues in a way that were more attractive to the community. And then listen, you can't underestimate the power of controlling the courthouse. In, in many of the counties that uh, were the communities largest, historically, yeah. it was border, were border counties. Uh, just as an aside, I mean, the 19, uh, uh, I guess 1994 was the first time I, I, I ventured out in a statewide race. And I remember, you know, uh, campaigning in, let's say, West Texas. You'd be in, in uh, middle of Nordessa and you'd look around, you know, you'd do the typical classroom visit and talk about voting, what you'd up to, and this sort of thing. 20, 25% of the class might have been Latino. I'm like, uh, my, my bet is if I went out there today, it'd be 45, 50, 60. My point is, that in those days, the Latino population was primarily concentrated in counties where the Democratic Party controlled the courthouse, controlled the patronage, controlled yep. the excess too, and that, that. So you started with those disadvantages. So that, that's where we started. We started with an uphill climb, uh, and we didn't make it better in a couple of cycles where we talked about issues like immigration the way we did. Well, and let's, so. and let's get to that. Uh, Senator Van de Pute of San Antonio, you know uh, Senator mm -hmm. Van de Pute was here last week, and she talked about a problem that she perceived the Republicans having was targeting Latino voters and not Latinos, that it was too much of a political calculation to expand the ballot box and not the tent. Mm -hmm. In the way that issues were talked about last legislative session, uh, voter ID, redistricting, sanctuary cities, that the way that the party talked about those issues may have seemed hostile mm -hmm. or maybe unfriendly, to be nicer about it, uh, to, to the community, that it wasn't yeah. simply the affirmative case that Democrats made to Latinos, but that it was almost a negative case that, let, that, that Republicans yeah. were making, whether well, they intended to or not. Perhaps. Listen, the, uh, the best politics, I think, for the Republican Party, for the Democrat Party at that, at, at that rate, is one that promotes economic opportunity and jobs. And the closer the Latino po population moves, and, and I think in Texas we're, we're there in terms of being a majority-minority population, is referred to simply a majority, right. the closer aligned this community's interests are with those that have generally been the topic of discussion and debates in, in, in the political arena. Yeah. And so it's going to be uh, taxes, it's going to be schools, it's going to be criminal justice, it's going to be those sorts of things right. that impact the ability of you to put a check in your own pocket. So if you're now and the so chairman I, of the I, Republican Party of Texas, that would be your message to I, I say you talk broadly about issues that are yeah. about economic opportunity and do them with a sensitivity to the Latino populations. Look, let's take our lead from what we see in the business, in the business side, corporate America. Uh, you know, whether, whether you're selling burgers or clothes or everything else, you are recognizing the power and weight of, of the uh, Latino consumer. And you're not really saying that your products are different in some other way, you're just saying your products are different and better in a way that is understandable and relates to a different community. Right. I, I, I think that's what uh, both parties need to do. 
So the argument is, don't talk to Latinos as, la as Latinos, talk, talk, as, to, talk, talk, to, talk to Americans Talk to la or Latinos Texas. as consumers of right. political dialogue. Right. And, and try to figure out what motivates them the way that you would motivate any yeah. other any other, uh, any other consumer. So if you're the campaign manager for a statewide candidate who happens to be Republican and Hispanic, you're George P. Bush's campaign manager. <laughs> you're, nice. I'd rather be his fundraiser. Well, <laughs> he seems to be doing okay on his that's own. That's what I'm saying. Uh, yeah. I think that's a, that's a sweeter uh, so, job. So you're, you're the campaign manager for a statewide Republican uh, who happens to be Latino. Uh, do you say uh, run a campaign that is expressly about expanding the tent or just run the same, you know, run a campaign that talks about issues more broadly across the state? If, if I'm counseling George people, I say keep doing what you're doing. Yeah. Uh, Can you please ask him to talk to the press? Yeah. Well, listen, yeah. Uh, <laughs> No, but look. I figured I, I had my shot since. No, no, no. I'll, I'll answer that question. Yeah. I, I think it's it's like anything else. He's he's out. He's getting comfortable. He's making his speeches. He's pressing the flesh. He's talking to people. There will be a time for and press. And that's what he should. And, but that's what. He and that's doing. exactly what he should be doing. Right. And and if you look at how he's doing it, he is very comfortable being George P. Bush Latino, George P. Bush Republican, George P. Bush Scion of. He's very comfortable with all these things that go into making up George P. Bush. And I think ultimately that's what people are going to look at. They're going to look at a Latino candidate who's genuine, sincere, he's authentic, and he's conservative. Right. And it's going to be, it's not going to be one that makes him attractive. It's going to be that, that, that whole, that, yeah. that sense. Look, authenticity, which is a, a, a much bandied about word, ultimately is about integrity. Integrity is being comfortable with who you are yeah. and having a sense of right and wrong. And that's what George P. Bush projects. Yeah. And, and that he does it in a way that is comfortable in all communities, I think ultimately it's going to be why he's a very successful candidate. Are having candidates who happen to be Hispanic running as Republicans, is that a, an, an important uh, a way for Republicans to crack the code here? There's been a lot of discussion yeah. over the I think years it's, I look, I think whether it's, that's been an obstacle. I mean, you, you know, you were succeeded on the Railroad Commission by Victor Carrillo, mm -hmm. who very famously lost a primary to an Anglo candidate and then complained afterwards that he believed he, his surname was the reason that he lost. So are, are Latino candidates running as Republicans an issue, or, is, or, or do we tend to make too much of the ethnicity of candidates in your party? Uh, this, you're talking to a guy that got his thing handed to him on a platter in 1994. I finished fourth in a fourth-person primary, and it would have been easy to say that. But I think, uh, I think the truth of the matter was that uh, I, I, I didn't raise enough money, and I probably didn't work hard enough, and I didn't start early enough. I don't know if that was the case with Victor, but I don't think that was the disqualifier. Uh, and I do think it's helpful for the party to have Latino candidates, and I don't think that it is a disqualifier in Republican primary voters' minds that that's the case. Well, Ted Cruz uh, has disproved that theory in any case. He right? has disproved that, and, and so I, I think you know that, that's that's part of the uh, people would like you to believe that, uh, but I don't think it's a disqualifier within the Republican Party to be Latino at all. In fact, quite the, quite the contrary. Now. I think I think that if you look at the size and the, and the growth in the party. It's, it's increasingly uh, reflective of where, tech, where, where Texas is yeah. uh, on issues. Texas is a pretty conservative state. Listen, if you're, I, don't, you know, I don't care how much money you have or how articulate you are. If you're, let's say, a liberal, Democrat, a liberal Latino in the Republican primary, you're not going to win. I mean, voters, voters, voters can figure these things out. And, and I don't think they disqualify based on it. Based on it, Let, let's talk about Mexico for the balance of the time we have, a subject that you know extremely well, and it's not unrelated to immigration and some of the other things we've been right. talking about. Uh, Mr. Peña Nieto has been in office now for a little less than a year. Is that right? A little over 100 days, yeah. 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 Uh, so, uh, 137. How's he, how's he doing? And, and, and what does his time in office say at the moment about relations that we have with our very important neighbor to the south. Listen, I, I give him very high marks. Uh, and I, I would take a step back and look at where the country is. Uh, through the year 2000, they'd been a single party, essentially a single party country for nearly 70 years yeah. or 71 years. And then you had two elections where you elected from what had traditionally been the minority party, the PAN. So you've had 12 years of a little, of a little more uh, kind of openness and transparency. When Enrique Peña Nieto was elected, uh, there was a sense, quote, return to the old PRI. Well, I don't think that that was ever possible because you couldn't return to the old Mexico. What you have now is a more open Mexico in terms of the volume of trade that they do with the rest of the world. I mean, I think 60 some odd percent of their GDP is related to trade, which is very significant. That's larger uh, than the US and China. 
44 trade agreements. So they, they, have, they have opened themselves up uh, in a way to trade that was going to make being that old kind of PRI that uh, the, the old political authoritarianism was going to make it impossible. Second, that you have a, a more robust media. There's still areas where, where competition has to be yep. uh, opened up, but you have a more, more robust media, so you couldn't return to that. So he actually, and there's a number of factors, but, the, but he actually had to run a campaign where he went out and convinced people that he was the person that should be, uh, that, that, that deserved their vote. That's a wonderful thing that forced him to talk about issues like uh, the need for labor reform, fiscal reform, energy reform, uh, in a way that voters had to say, okay, we understand what you're about. And so as he moved, uh, after he won the election, he moved very quickly. And then this is where I think you saw a bit of the OPRI's capacity for governing. And they have a very deep bench and a lot of talent within mm -hmm. the PRI. He moved very quickly to uh, get the other parties under the tent, which I think was very smart. Rather than take a, a PRI victory lap, he moved very quickly to unite the PAN and PRD uh, factions, or, or parties, around an agenda. It wasn't let's all get under the tent, hold hands, and say we're going to work for the good of Mexico. He says, let's all get in a room several times, sit down, and come up with a whole list of yep. things that we agree we're going to work on. I mean, that is incredibly astute. In the wake of that, through the transition, when you still had the former president Calderon in office, there were a couple of pieces of legislation that, that had the opportunity, and one of them uh, was a labor reform, and they got that done. So it's as, it's as though it was a, he allowed for, if you will, a gracious exit of his predecessor, yep. and a, uh, a pact amongst the incoming, uh, amongst the parties, an administration full of very effective, uh, both uh, operators and, and technical people, are people that kind of policy people. And so I'd, I'd say he's off to a fast start. If, if, if it, and the second thing that I'd say is he is the beneficiary of a very sound 17, 18 years worth of macroeconomic policy and stability. Uh, you know, it used to be every six years you had an election in Mexico and the president got thrown off his horse because there was a devaluation. No, but they've had sound macro yep. macroeconomic policy, some growth. They're the beneficiaries of a differential with China that is allowing the manufacturing sector in, in, in Mexico to grow at, at a nice pace. Uh, if you look at it, whether it's you know vis-a-vis -vis China, the wage differential has narrowed, the energy costs, the proximity to our market, so there's growth there. And so he's a beneficiary of sound macroeconomic policy, good political judgment. I think what they have to do is manage expectations, get a couple of more of these uh, uh, of his initiatives on reform done. Uh, certainly, energy is a big one. You probably yeah. want to spend a little time on that. But if they do that, there's no reason in the world why they can't move from about 3.5, 3.7 percent GDP to four, four and a half. That's yeah. significant. So you have good, you feel good about it. I, I, I feel and optimistic. Real, about I feel optimistic about it. I think really the interesting thing for this administration is going to be managing expectations. Yeah. Because if you look at the well, listen. Uh, you know, less than a handful of years ago, the only story coming out of Mexico was security and violence. And that continues to be a challenge, but that was the only story coming out. Now you can't pick up whether it's The Economist and their special report on Mexico. The Financial Times has referred to Mexico as the Aztec Tiger. Uh, if you look at these things, you realize in terms of the emerging markets, nobody is better positioned than Mexico. Yeah. They, are, they are writing now, and I think for the next decade, the same story that you saw written about Brazil. Uh, for the last decade. That's a very good thing for Texas. But you, that is a very good thing But for you Texas. acknowledge that the security questions continue, even though that's no longer the only story that's being told. There are still people in Texas who are obviously yeah. you know, particularly interested in the fate of Mexico and in the relationship between this country and Mexico who will say, I've got to go to business on Mexico, to, I've got to go to Mexico City yeah. on business. Or I might want to go to Acapulco or Cancun or Puerto Vallarta on vacation. There's still an anxiety here about whether conditions in Mexico are safe. We still hear about reporters and others along the border being uh, kidnapped, threatened, killed. Uh, have conditions in Mexico adequately improved in that respect, or are we simply just hearing about other things, and so the security story is, is not necessarily better, but it's just in competition with other stories to be told? Uh, I, I think what you're, what, what you're hearing is more balanced story. Yeah. Uh, and, l and let me pick on Brazil for a little bit, and not so much pick on Brazil, but just use them as, as, as a uh, point of reference. The Brazil story has been very positive for the last 10 years. It's starting to flatten out because of the economics. Yeah. But by virtue of the fact that they didn't sit on our border, all we heard were the economic stories. Had Brazil sat on our border, we'd also hear poverty stories and crime stories that would right. frighten most Texans. Right. And so what you're, what you're hearing out of Mexico now is, is more balanced. You're getting the economic news because the, the uh, 
the press is starting to cover it, I think, and they were, you know, look, kind of picking winners in today's global economy is tough. There's not that many. One of them happens to be Mexico. And the, the second part of that is I think as people go to Mexico, certainly investors uh, can manage around some of the security issues. I mean, whether it's through private contracting and these sorts of things. And then thirdly, I think folks are getting more aware of the need for sim simple situational awareness. Uh, and, and by that, what was that, that that old country lawyer that used to tell the jury before they went back into the jury room, don't leave your common sense in the courtroom. Take it back there with you when you decide this case. My advice to people is don't leave your common sense at the border when Just you go be, south. Be, be smart. Be, be aware of yeah. where you are. Listen, there are places in, in my hometown of Brownsville that if I wander off at the wrong time of, uh, wrong time of day, I'm going to be in trouble. And so, I mean, do, do not be wandering off. Uh, we saw some really dumb things done around spring break. Uh, and it seemed like every, every kid that would do something really crazy had a dad who was this close to the congressman. Uh, and I was immediately having to explain, you know, this is, so, so, so my, 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 look, I, I'm not trying to minimize it. I'm saying be, be smart when you're traveling. Uh, yeah, sure, there are places that you can get yourself in trouble at the wrong time, of, uh, wrong time of day in the wrong part of the city. There are places that you get yourself in a lot of trouble real quick. But, but just be smart when you're traveling, and I think you'll be fine. And certainly most of the tourist areas, uh, you'll, you'll hear some blips. You've probably read a little bit about more activity in Cancun that, tr that is troubling, Acapulco that's troubling. Um, you get down along the Mayan Riviera, and you're going to be fine. Uh, you, get, you get to Mexico City, where I spend four, four and a half days a week, and I've got to tell you, it is a beautiful city with a great history. Uh, and you would have and, no hesitation about recommending somebody to travel there. On well, I know you'll be there in June, and I'm looking forward to uh, seeing you. Okay. <laughs> All right, well, let's stop right there. Give Ambassador Garza a hand for his willingness to share this stuff with us. Thank you. Any questions now? Excuse questions? Me? Sure. All right, questions from the audience, please. We'll let you pick up on topics we might not have asked. Mr. Trevino, who never asks a provocative question ever in his entire life. Go ahead. Uh, Ambassador, thanks for coming. Uh, I'm you. curious as to your thoughts on the prospects for energy sector liberalization in Mexico. I know Penny um, Nieto's, uh, this has been talked about, a constitutional amendment coming in the next few months. And right. Yeah, you mentioned energy. This is a good opportunity to talk yeah. about energy. Let's do that. Okay, I'll, I'll try to get to it pretty quickly so we can get a couple of questions. Well, I, I think the environment for const, full constitutional reform is going to be kind of difficult. I, I think they will probably have significant reform. But ultimately, here, here's the kicker, I think, for most, uh, uh, certainly for U.S. companies. The ability to book reserves. I have not been around a discussion around energy that it doesn't come right back to that. Because without that, it makes it very difficult for uh, U.S. investment to have the certainty and the comfort going in, into the country. And around those words, you have to ask yourself, will there be certainty for a U.S. investment without a constitutional amendment? So you're left kind of chasing your tail a little bit. If they put it in the law, but they don't do it through a constitutional amendment, will U.S. investors be comfortable? I think probably short of that, you can still have lots of openings in the energy sector. But it's going to have to be a little bit more than the multiple service contracts that are advantageous to people like Schlumberger and Halliburton. And, yeah, there's a lot of business. There's a lot of U.S. interest in Mexico, just not on the, on the, uh, the NP side. Now, with that said, let me tell you why I think there's going to be more uh, uh, support for that in Mexico than there has been historically. One, again, the president ran on it. He's not, he's not pulling this out of his back pocket in, in, in you know, uh, one year into uh, his administration or six months into his administration. He ran on it. He prepared the Mexican people for it. Second, the Mexican people now more closely tie energy reform to their own competitiveness and their own growth, their, yeah. uh, own growth in their economy. And thirdly, if you look at manufacturing, the subtick that they've had in manufacturing, energy is very di directly related to that. If you're paying more for energy and more for gas in Mexico than you are in, in U.S. markets, look, manufacturing is going to start to look north. When there's a, and, and, and Texas might actually be the beneficiary of some of that. But on the flip side, I think we're actually the beneficiaries of energy, broad energy reform in Mexico because there's a lot of opportunity both for capital and technology to be part of the, the growth in the energy sector in Mexico. You can't fly over the Eagle Ford at night without being struck, or any time of day, without being struck by the fact that, that there's so much activity north of that river yep. and there's nothing going on south. Well, I got to tell you, you know, th those, those, those reservoirs are not stopping at that river. There is a lot of opportunity. Don't call it money. 
It's, it's more than that. There's a lot of opportunity being left on the table south of that river by virtue of the fact that there is no, no, no mechanism in the mechanism of energy reform that allows for the flow of capital uh, into that country for the development of that resource. But it may be coming. I, I think, I th look, everything I've seen about this administration suggests the ability and the savvy and the commitment uh, to getting it done. They've, they've, they've already made, you know, they've made some tough calls. Yep. Uh, you saw not too long ago where the longtime head of the teachers union was, 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 was arrested and they'll, they'll have a process. That was unthinkable. Uh, just a few years ago. So this administration has shown not only the, the ability, I mean, I don't, they, they run on it, they put it out there, I think they can get it done. I, I think they can get something done. Questions? Other hands, please. Mr. Dixon and then here in the front. Mr. Dixon in the back. Stand up, Pat, if you want. That's Mr. Kramer, Consul General Kramer. We'll get the Consul General, I promise you. We'll get the Libertarian first. Go ahead. We ought to ask him a question. He also served in Venezuela. Oh, I'd, I'd, I'd love to get your take on that, okay. but, but that's Evan's Mr. call. Mr. Dixon, go ahead. Yeah, I just wanted to ask you if your impression of the cause and effect of drug policy on violence in Mexico. Cause and effect of drug policy on violence in Mexico. Drug policy on Mexico. Drug policy, well, listen. Uh, I mean, again, re reducing is somewhat to economics. Uh, uh, we, you know, where drugs are demanded, drugs will be supplied. And we have a significant demand that drives those drugs north. Then when you, when you interject a, uh, an aggressive uh, enforcement policy, you've only driven the cost of, of, of moving it north up. And when you've driven it up, you've created incentives for, for people to want to control the ability to no move it north. You've created greater incentives. And having created those incentives, you create you know, uh, conflict between those that want to move it north. There, from that springs your violence. And so whether, I mean, if you want to lead me to a comment on consumption, you're probably not going to get me there. If you want to suggest that there's a relationship between one and the other, I think the economics suggests that there are. You know, so I, 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 I'd be a fool to tell you otherwise. Does the move in this country to, uh, well, I would say it's a move more toward than a move to, mm -hmm. uh, decriminalizing marijuana in some states or figuring out a way to reduce penalties, to treat marijuana more leniently as a, as a, 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 a drug than mm -hmm. we have historically in this country. Does that concern you from the vantage point uh, on that side of the border, when you when you look at the drug war and you look at drug policy, I tell you the what's happening it, in this country no. concerns me. It, it concerns me to the extent that it's perceived as some sort of panacea to their violence, uh, because there will always be uh, 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 they've got to. They wouldn't be a panacea, regardless. You know, if, if we legalize all marijuana tomorrow, there would still be issues around methamphetamines and cocaine and other drugs. Yeah. And secondly, I, I would hope that it wouldn't take the focus away from Mexico's need to build more of a rule of law culture, to build institutions around security that can, that can make citizens more comfortable. I mean, the truth of the matter is we have a crime and violence problem in the United States, but we have institutions that, that sort of keep them within quote, reasonable, you know, sort of, we, we have police forces yeah. with, generally with integrity, we have a judicial system, we have jail system. Those are the sorts of institutions that need to be built and, 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 and have the capacity to, 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 uh, to contain uh, these things. And then in terms of the rule of law on the civil side, rule of law is absolutely critical to their economic competitiveness. I saw one study that suggested that rule of law reform and implementation would have more of an impact on their economic growth than even energy reform. That's pretty significant. It's much tougher to get in many respects, but that's pretty significant. The same way if you look at uh, uh, any state or country, ultimately if you have education reform, real significant education reform that actually uh, builds the human side, the, the human capital of, of a state or nation. That impacts the GDP more than any one single reform. And so I, I think, getting back to your question, we, we have to be careful to think that somehow, you know, the, the, this move towards liberalization is going to have a direct impact on. No, there are a lot of other factors. So from the perspective of somebody sitting in, in, in Mexico, I would say, hey, wait, wait, wait. What, what they're doing in Colorado, what they're doing on, on uh, some of the northwestern states, 
Don't go think that's going to make your security issues or your violence issues go away tomorrow. You've still got some work to do on the rule of law side. You've still got some work to do on creating more economic opportunity yeah. for people in this country. And we've all got, not you, we've all got some work to do on the abuse of the methamphetamines and cocaine and some of these other drugs. Sir, right there. Natalia, right here. Yes, sir. Uh, Mr. Ambassador, you brought up the case of the arrest of uh, Esther Gordia. And I was wondering, do you see that as uh, simply a case of uh, official corruption or slapping down the person who got out of uh, line politically? Or is it a, uh, a wider part of his uh, bringing, uh, reforming the labor movement generally? Do you want me to allocate percentages to each of those? <laughs> Uh, you know, it's probably a little bit of all, uh, and I'd be real hard put to give you a percentage, but ultimately they had to have a case. Uh, and so I, I think uh, you, you'd have to say that they felt they had a good case with respect to official corruption, and it allowed them to move uh, against her. And she so happened to be an obstacle to additional education reform and and uh, uh, and, and the politics of it probably. So it sense. checked a few boxes. I, it checked it checked a lot of boxes, yeah. but but I think you have to start with a case, uh, and and you have to start with a case for lots of reasons. And I'll go back to what I said a second ago about Mexico being so much more a part of the global economic structure. And with those multilateral agreements and with those bilateral agreements comes a uh, uh, kind of a microscope. Uh, there's, o there's only so much of that, uh, you know, th 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 that they could do, quote, out of view of. Uh, this isn't Putin's Russia. This is our more open and democratic and transparent neighbor. Uh, so there, there's only so much that they could do without a case, and I think they felt that they had a good, a good enough case to move against her. And then they're going to have to make it somewhat in the public arena. Uh, so they know that they have to have a case because if they try to make it in the public arena, in the court, I mean in the judicial arena, but watched by the public, and 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 they don't make it, they're going to look pretty bad. Ma'am, um, right there, and then right here. Moving to a different form of trafficking, human trafficking, yeah. not just for people who are coming because they want to look for work, but literally yeah, no, are being no, no, kidnapped, uh, children who are being kidnapped and trafficked as sex slaves, that sort of thing. My understanding is pretty much the same guys that are running the drug runs are also running the human trafficking runs. Do you see anything in the immigration bill that would impact that or penalize that? Do you see anything in the United States that is going to work towards better combating right. that and not treating the trafficking victims like criminals in the same way, and then what do you see as Mexico's responsibility in that since if there wasn't a demand, it wouldn't be coming north? Yeah. What, yeah, what do we do about that? Yeah, no, that's a huge question. And, 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 and listen, I think what, what you're seeing there, uh, the role of NGOs and of human rights organizations uh, in elevating those issues into the, into the consciousness has been absolutely, I think, absolutely key. When you talk about the organizations that are doing it, I think you're, you're, you're pretty close to right. Because essentially, if you look at a corridor, uh, as it's kind of like a toll road. If the, if the, if the transnational organization or the cartels control the toll road, then they kind of pretty much control what you put on that road. And so you can move drugs, you can move people, you can, uh, you can involve in the, in the sex trafficking, the children and women for, for exploitation and, and moving them north and south. Uh, and let me tell you another component of it that is, that is particularly disgusting, and I don't know, Kramer, if you were there, but the, uh, the amount of traffic from the United States that goes south uh, for that same sort of activity. Uh, and, and there, you really need the coordination of law enforcement people on, on both sides, and you need a level to communicate. So the capacity that you built with respect to the exchange of information and then intelligence and ultimately real-time intelligence is critical. I think we've built the plumbing to address these cases more effectively. We've built the consciousness to, affect the, uh, to, to, to address these more effectively. And part of building that consciousness was, was just the level of disgust that, that I think law enforcement, or not law enforcement, leadership generally, uh, political leadership in both countries has sorts of these issues that I, that I think there, there's, there's more being done on that. Uh, probably not enough, but certainly more than there, uh, than there was even five years ago. Uh, 
and, and part of look, part of part of addressing any whether it's whether it's a sex exploitation or drugs or, or, or the, the movement of peoples is just more efficient borders, more efficient more of efficient legal crossings. We don't do enough with the crossings that we have. Every community uh, turn around wants to build a bridge. Well, you know what? We're not doing all that well with the ones we have. We don't adequately staff. We don't implement sufficient technology. We're right. not using the scans. This gets back to your earlier point about that, security. That, right? that, yeah. that, you, want, you, want, you want more security? Put more money into the crossings that we have. Put smart money in there. Uh, don't, don't throw good money after bricks. Put smart money into technology at the crossings that we have. Gentleman right here, I thought, right? And then, and then we'll have a question in the back, and then okay. we'll end it. Natalia, right here in the front. Sir. Ambassador Garza, first of all, thank you for taking time out of your day to speak to us this morning. Um, my question was regarding security, since this is a topic that's already come up a few times. Um, in, your, in your suggestion, what, in your views, what are some of the best, what are some of the ways we can best support our Mexican allies in, support, in securing the country? Uh, that'd be the first part of my question. And the second part would be, do you have any suggestions on how we can stem the tide of, of illegal firearms into Mexico? Okay, I'll, I'll try to answer the, 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 the first one. And God, I don't know if I have a short answer, but I started it on this question over here. I, I, uh, I took post in November of 2002 and uh, in the wake of 9-11 and our focus on, on uh, counterterrorism and the need to build some capacity in that wake. And one of the things that was very apparent is that we had communication we had ritual exchanges of information. We had abrazos at mid-bridge for as long as I can remember in Laredo and, and uh, out west. What we didn't have was the ability to move from information, as I said, to intelligence, to real-time intelligence. And that, that takes some doing to build the level of trust and the openness in terms of vetting your partners and reviewing the kinds of folks that you're going to be dealing with south. Now, what I think that, that plumbing has done is allowed us to move from uh, counterterrorism to narcotics to other areas. And, and do not underestimate the, the need for that. What I think we have to continue to do is, is just that. In the transition to a new administration, there, there is by force, both here and in Mexico, transition periods where you build that kind of capacity with new people. But it has to be framed in terms of, just like our immigration debate, it has to be framed in the best interest of the host country. I don't think that Mexico woke up one day and said, I want to do more with intelligence because it's the best interest of my neighbor. They woke up one day because in the wake of the bombings in Bali, you remember that, the, yep. the, the tourist as a target? They woke up one day and realized that in the Bay of Campeche, the, uh, the petroleum resources out there, the energy resources out there, we were the consumer. We were also the consumer of their tourist products in Cancun that if they didn't have this intelligence, the strike on Cancun really was not only a strike of the tourist uh, sector in Mexico, it was a strike against U.S. interest. So they needed to build that capacity. It was in their self-interest. That a strike in the Bay of Campeche was not just a strike on Mexico, it was a strike against us. And so whether the issue, so, so that's what I think we have to just really focus on that. Would we like more operational day-to-day -day involvement? Would we like more, tele, more of our court assets down there probably? Uh, but given the, give, given the nature of a relationship, the history of a relationship, I think we have to focus on what we can do that's most effective and that's intelligence. On the gun south, listen, I'm a Second Amendment guy, but I, I know what the laws are. And we're not even doing enough with the laws that are on the books now uh, in terms of, of the movement of gun south. And I think we could do, uh, we, we could do more in that respect. Uh, and so, you know, it, 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 it's already illegal to export a lot of what's moving south. Why don't we start there? And, that, that, and, and again, that also comes to, uh, uh, to intelligence. And, 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 and we, it's going to be a priority for, uh, for, for, uh, for our neighbor. It's, it ought to be a, a priority for us on that one, particularly because we're talking about enforcing our laws. Yeah. Last question, sir. Could you uh, comment on some indications recently that the new government may be trying to make some headway on Amparo, whether it's uh, prosecuting La Profesora or breaking up the monopolies in certain sectors of the economy? Comment on their legislation designed to... Uh Try to reduce the impact right, of the, the impact Amparo. Of the Amparo. The, uh, 
Does it, how many of you know what that question is focused on? Give, a, give us the 30 seconds, if you don't mind, to explain what this is about. The Empata is essentially uh, somewhere between a, 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 a almost an automatic temporary restraining order and a writ, right? I mean, it essentially stays any proceeding. And it is so easily and uh, uh, granted and gotten that it stays a lot of activity uh, in terms of enforcement of contract, enforcement of breaking up monopolies, enforcement of, it, it essentially just ties the hands of any, of, uh, of any body that would seek to enforce the law. And the new administration has proposed that that be reformed and that they, uh, the proceedings be allowed to go fairly smoothly. I, look, there's so much criticism, this, this is one of the, I don't pretend to understand it completely, but I'll tell you both why I think they'll get something and what you got to watch out for. There's been so much criticism of it generally that people know that this whole Amparo thing is just a tool of those kind of incumbent anything, incumbent provider of any type of service. It's a tool of those that have to stymie those that would like to open up something. Let me reduce it to that. And so the new government has proposed reform to make it easier for those that would like to open up things to, to get movement on any of their causes. Uh, and I think to that, to that end it's good. What you have to be careful of, and again, I'm not an expert on this, but you have to be careful of then giving government so much power that no, no, nothing can really kind of fetter them a little bit. So what they're going to have to find is a balance between a more efficient way to get grievances out there and to get cases moving and something that opens it up to the government always getting what they want. I mean, there's a big part of me that uh, I'd say why I am a conservative is about limiting the breadth and scope and intrusion of government in our lives. And so there's a big part of me that says, yeah, that's a nice tool, but I don't know that I want to give it to government either. I don't want to give them that un un unfettered, too, too, much, too much power. So look, what you, what, just to take a step back, what you have in Mexico right now is something very, very exciting. You actually have debate about issues. You actually have parties generally willing to work yep. together. You actually have a focus on reform. You have a focus on competitive. You have a competitiveness, a focus on growing the economy. Be nice to see that here. And, uh, and so what you're, what you're having is a, is a pretty good moment right now in that country. And I think it's, it's worth watching. Uh, it impacts us here in Texas very directly, whether it's our economy, whether it's the impact on our demographic, whether it's the impact on our uh, uh, quite frankly, how we view ourselves, it, it is an amazing moment. To really understand where Texas is going to be uh, 15, 20 years from now, you'd be wise to spend a few days in Mexico. I think, I think the idea that our government would be better off if it were more like Mexico's no, is a good I, I, I didn't, no, 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 no. I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to go with that, but I think at this moment there's a level of cooperation that is admirable. No, I, I get it. Well, we're, we're going to... No, 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 I'm never going not going to go that far. All right, yeah. We're going to, we'll edit that in post, as they say. We're going to make that the last point. Uh, thank you very much, Ambassador, for being here. We appreciate it. Thank you. Good conversation. Thank you. Thank you all for coming. We'll see you again. Always fun. The Texas Tribune's Trib Live event series is made possible through the generous support of AT&T, BP, Christus Health, Raise Your Hand Texas, Texas Coalition, of dental support organizations, Texas A&M University, and 83rd Legislative Session Sponsor MyPlates.com.